This is the Adoption Law Firm Podcast with your favorite lawyer, Sam McClure. Visit us online at www.theadoptionfirm.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Adoption Law Firm Podcast. Today, I'm here with Sam McClure, and we are going to tackle the topic of transracial adoption. That's yes, hot. You picked a hot is. topic today. I know. I know. So let's talk about, first of all, some challenges and then how to overcome them from a legal standpoint. Right. So I think challenges, one is perception of the community. And uh, the other category would be there's real differences in ethnic heritage and um, how to prepare people from different ethnicities to live in the world that we live in. So okay. the point that I think is most healthy to start from is for those who belong to the great creator king who's coming back to to mend every broken part of the tapestry is to remember that part of Christ's plan for redeeming the world is to redeem a people for himself from every tribe and language and people and nation. Amen. That means that when those called out from the world that belong to Christ, that are adopted into his family, are standing before the throne... We're going to be standing with people of every color. That's right. That's truly our family. Our identity is in that we belong to God fundamentally and our brothers and sisters at the seat of the feast of Christ are of every race, if race is a thing, if we want to make that a category. Right. Okay. So the perception issue with that is what? You know, if we're just talking to the American population right now, that that in some degrees that matters where you live. That matters. Do you live in the southeastern United States or the southwestern, or the north, northeast, northwestern? So I, I think that matters. I think you know the southeastern part of the country uh, has still some vestiges of racial discrimination that other parts of the country don't. In, in some ways better. In some ways, you know, uh, Montgomery, Alabama, where we're recording from today was the birthplace, the tipping spear right. of the civil rights movement. A lot of those things are still in the DNA of the of the culture. In some ways, I've, I think that means that a place like Montgomery, Alabama is a little more inoculated to racial tensions. We've been there. We've done that. Right. You know, I've had families that with, uh, I've heard reports of people that have adopted transracially in Alabama that moved to California and thought, oh my goodness, I thought there was no racism in California. It's way worse in California uh, than, than we ever experienced in Montgomery, Alabama. So I think... Mm. You know, for uh, uh, let's just say a, a quote, quote, white family adopting a black child, I think there is going to be some perception from the community that that's a little bit weird. Um, but I, I think in, in my experience, and maybe just because I'm, you know, immersed in the world, that's more of an anomaly. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, we've had a, a African-American family adopt a white child. And so I think there's perceptions on both sides that would say sure. that that's a little weird. Now, I think it also goes a little bit deeper than that from weird to that's even a bad thing for children. And I think a lot of foster parents are shocked when they bump up against this worldview that says transracial adoption is a bad thing for a child. Like it's better for a child to uh, be neglected. It's better for a child to be physically abused than to be separated from their ethnic heritage. But now, Michelle, I'll just hand it over to you. you you've sure. adopted transracially. What, sure. What's been your experience with that? Yes. So um, I am Caucasian and we have a an Asian child um, we adopted from China. And when I lived in Birmingham, 
um, it was pretty normal to go to the park and see a lot of white families with Asian children. Um, it's, it seemed to be um, a little more normal than it is here where I live now in Elmore County. It's not seen as much. So haven't really gotten a lot of, of blowback from that. I think for some reason, sadly, it's a little more accepted. I put that in air quotes that you can't see on a podcast, but it's a little more accepted, honestly, in this part of the country than it would be for a white family to um, adopt a black child. And I, and I think that's sad. I, I, I hate that. Um, and, but that's, I think that's where we live. And I think that it's also um, kind of the culture that we live in now in 2021. Um, it's even worse. So, um, but I would say that we've gotten some questions. Uh, there's been a lot of questions about things from some people who are a little more bold than others. And I welcome those. I think that's a great thing because it opens a conversation about adoption and opens a conversation and opens people's minds a little bit more to that topic. And I think that's great. But there are some people that just sit there and don't ask those questions because they're embarrassed to ask them. And, you know, do you feel like your adopted child struggles with identity issues? I'm Asian, but I'm in a a white family. I don't think that she does now. She may later. She's 11. And I think that emotionally she's not really 11 because she was institutionalized for the first 28 months of her life, which are very developmental years. So I think emotionally she's behind. Um, Developmentally, she's fine. Um, But I, I think that that I, I think that some at some point there will be questions from her more than there have been before. But the most that she's ever said was, she, and we've been very open with her about her being adopted and what her her background is and things like that, so that she's aware of that. Um, but she, when she was very little, when she first got home, she would go, you know, well, brother has blue eyes, and 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 other brother has blue eyes, and you have blue eyes, but I, do I have blue eyes? And I was like, no, baby, you have brown eyes. <laughs> There's a reason for that, you know, and so we kind of talk about that and we pray for her birth mom. We call her her belly mama and things like that. So um, I think that's important to have those kind of conversations with your child and not. And and when she first got home, we were very careful about making sure that we still celebrated her culture and we celebrated Chinese New Year and things like that. I don't you know, right now, I don't think it's as important, but I think that we try to incorporate parts of her culture into when she just to help with the transition when she first got home. And I think that it's important for an adoptive family to do that. And all the family was involved in that. And we did that with other families that had adopted Asian children, too, sometimes. So you guys would connect with other right. families. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Community is so important. Yeah, and I think processing with your child, like they're having those questions, right? Like sure. our oldest son, we adopted when he was three out of the Hungarian foster care system from the Roma ethnicity, so very dark skinned. And I'm about as white as a sheet of paper. And my wife is too, good old Scottish genes. So how have you guys dealt with that? Yeah, I, I think very similarly is is uh, being open to have those conversations. So talking about their adoption story and creating safe environments. Right. We talk about his first mommy, belly mommy. I yeah. That's a new one for me. I hadn't heard of belly mommy. Uh, we talk about his first mom and to the extent that we can honor her place in his right. life, we're processing that age-appropriate questions. And I th- he's 13 now, so he's been in our family 10 years. He's the oldest. And so as we have three younger biological children, so some of those questions would come up, like I've got dark skin and that's right. weird. And we, and we live in a community that we try to be, we try to be intentional about putting our kids uh, around other ethnicities, right? Just in general, like how do we love people different from us? But he was very aware of his skin color, I think early on, and um, we would talk about it. Uh, my wife was not surprisingly a little bit more tuned into that than I was, 
But, you know, I think it's just, it's a great opportunity to process the gospel. Like we, we started Absolutely. out with is, is God's plan. Like if people are uncomfortable with someone else because of their skin color, you're not going to like heaven very much <laughs> because, because uh, that's what it's going to be like is people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Now I think, you know, there's, it is, I think helpful to acknowledge some criticism of a book that was really popular probably eight years ago by Russell Moore called Adopted for Life. Mm-hmm. Adopted for Life. When we first started our adoption journey, one of our mentors uh, was giving out those books like they were kids. She probably had 50 on her shelf and she was giving them out, which is a great book. It talks about the uh, the Christian doctrine of adoption, that yes. this was God's plan from the beginning of the world. You can find that in, in, you know, in Ephesians and woven throughout other scripture, that God's plan from the beginning of the world, from before the foundation of the world, was that he knew that the world was going to get broken and that we were going to be orphaned from our spiritual father. And he was going to show his love, the strength of his love, by adopting these enemy orphans into his family. So all those that belong to God belong to him through adoption. And, and Russell Moore in this book, Adopted for Life, talks about picking his two sons up from the uh, I think Russian orphanage. Yes. That's a very influential book in my life, too. Yeah, and how they were screaming. You know, they're leaving this orphanage where they were abused, neglected, maltreated, and screaming and wanting it back. And now they have a new identity, listen to, you know, Johnny Cash and whatever football. So I, I think there's some good, but I think there is some guardrails that should be put up on that is that a child's, it's not a, a an all fours an analogy, a spiritual adoption, right? right? What God adopted us out of was complete evil torment and terror absolutely uh with no reverence for the our satanic spiritual father that used to control us and and just try to destroy us now that analogy doesn't cross over if you take that analogy too far to horizontal adoption you you don't display that reverence for the the ethnic culture that they were adopted out of right like mm-hmm. like we did the same thing as you did is uh, early on the early years we would be intentional about hungarian adoption communities right. and and, you know, this is, you know, this is a normal, you know, thing. This is not abnormal. So just, I think, helping them process their identity is important with transracial adoption. Mm-hmm. So creating that open space and, and if children feel safe to talk about those components of their identity, I think those skin color race issues are going to come up. Sure. Um, which is which is my goal for all the issues with my kids is that we're fostering healthy spaces where they can talk about whatever's on their mind. Um there is a worldview, and I think a lot of the social worker training goes into this river, and social workers have to be intentional to swim upriver or get in a different different creek. Is that well? Back in the in the '70s, there was an organization called National Association of Black Social Workers who put out a position statement that they still hold to that transracial adoption is bad for kids, that just removing children from their ethnic heritage. Uh, is detrimental to, to a child's well-being. And so you, we do see a lot of pushback, especially in the foster care community, where um, a, a parent of one race A may have had a child of race B in their home for the child's entire life, let's say three years. Mm-hmm. And the child's three years old, right from the hospital. And it, DHR starts moving in a direction where they're removing that child from the home mm-hmm. to place that child with an, a relative that has up to that point, been not involved at all just because of the connection or primarily because of the connection to the cultural heritage. I think that's just totally wrongheaded. Like after a certain point in time, uh, a child uh, bonds and attaches to their primary caregiver. It doesn't matter if they're green. Their mom, their mom and their dad. They're not. It's their mom and their dad, right. That, That bond to the primary caregiver is incredibly important 
to a child's development in, in all other areas of life. And Bruce Perry, Dr. Bruce Perry has really pioneered a lot of this research and made it consumable for the layperson. One of his books that is probably the most influential is The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. Mm-hmm. It talks about when a child does not attach to a primary caregiver early on in life, they, they lose the ability to develop in a myriad of other, um, other ways, especially in the, in the sphere of empathy, right? Empathy for other humans is incredibly important and that bond to the primary caregiver. So I think we've got to reverence the natural parents, reverence yes. the cultural heritage, it's important. Uh, but at the same time, acknowledge that it is in a child's best interest to be loved by who loves them. Right. right? At a certain, you know, in, in, in Alabama, every state has a federal mandate that if a child is in foster care, for 15 out of the last 24 months, Child Protective Services is mandated to file for termination of parental rights. That means that if a biological parent has not worked their case plan, got stable housing, drug-free, stable employment, um, you know, gone to whatever psychology parenting classes they need to, if they haven't done that in 15 months, then we have to transition our mindset to now look at the child's best interest and try to find a permanency plan with them. Ideally, that's with the foster family that's been caring for them for that amount of time. So to just kind of wrap this back up and bring this back home, um, if you're considering a transracial adoption, then we would obviously say that um, we think it's important to to remember birth mom and appropriately honor her, um, remember culture and appropriately learn about that and teach your child about that and and to be prepared for questions from other people, because um, in certain parts of the country, you may be looked at differently and questioned, and and that's fine. Um, I, I remember in Russell Moore's book, and I remember sometimes in, in some situations that I was in with my daughter, that my I'm very fluent in sarcasm. And so I would want to be really sarcastic when people would ask questions that I felt like were really ignorant. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's really an education process for other people sometimes. And so we just have to keep that in mind that there's going to be questions and it's not because they're ignorant. It's because that they just don't know and they haven't been educated on transracial adoption or adoption in general, really. And, um, you know, there's probably a lot of families walking around out there that we don't even realize that their children are adopted because it's not a transracial adoption. So there's just different challenges. So when you're considering that, to know that on the front end and um, to be informed, and we can obviously help with all of that here at the Adoption Law Firm. So you can go to our website. We've got resources there at um, theadoptionfirm.com. And you can also call us and we can answer your questions and we can set up some initial consultations to kind of discuss all these kind of things. And, and we'd be happy to serve you in whatever way we can. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Adoption Law Firm podcast. For more information on the topics discussed or to get in touch with us, go to www.theadoptionfirm.com.